Well, hello, friends. Uh, this is a bit of a departure from what we normally do because we are switching out science for politics today. Uh, we've done this once before where we broke down the Canadian election uh, with my good friends Scott and Steve back in Canada, and we're doing it again. We're going to start doing these more often. Call it to Brad for you does Canadian politics. Um, why? Because we enjoy politics. It seems fraught with opinion all over the place. Uh, and, you know, we're just ordinary people, but politics affects all of us, so why not talk about it? Uh, and we just, we enjoy, we enjoy the heck out of it. Um, so Scott and Steve joined me again, uh, and we're also joined by another good friend, Coleman, who is also back in Alberta in Edmonton, so we all called in. Uh, and did this online. Uh, it's a bit long, but hey, we covered a lot of things. We talk about local Alberta politics. So if you're in Alberta, this is for you. If you're not, uh, you might still find it interesting. Um, we talk about the current government and, and their strategy at balancing budgets uh, amidst a downturn in the economy, to put it lightly. Uh, Alberta is an oil-producing uh, province in Canada, always has been. Um, and arguably uh, needs to diversify. Anyway, so they're suffering right now. That's, that's one way to put it uh, with the downturn in oil and the way that uh, the world attention has turned away from oil and whatnot. But anyway, that's not too much analysis here. Uh, so yeah, so we discuss that. We discuss their tactics. Uh, we talk about a conservative party leadership race uh, in the federal uh, jurisdiction of Canadian politics um, and we talk about a protest that has gripped Canada. Um, start, it started with a pipeline being built across indigenous lands but as you will hear from our conversation it is not so simple. Uh, it's a very complex issue. Um, might be an interesting conversation for those outside of Canada to really just get a glimpse of how complicated uh, relationships with the First Nations communities are, the legality of it, the lack of legality uh, surrounding who owns what land and who has the rights to what. It's a mess. It's an absolute mess. Um, and the protests have shut down rail, transport, blocked ports, uh, all of this kind of stuff. Um, and it's, it's affected the economy and, it, and it's affecting uh, municipalities who rely on the, the rail system in Canada to get uh, necessary goods. So it's a pretty intense situation and it was, we didn't have any answers, obviously. Uh, we had opinions, but that's about as much as we can do. Um, but it's something worth talking about because like I said, it's a very complicated issue um, and it likely won't be resolved anytime soon. Um, and hopefully this is a chance where the Canadian population, the Canadian governments, the First Nations people can finally start to make some headway on some of these issues because as you'll hear from our discussion, we generally don't do a very good job of that. We kind of just kick it down the road. Uh, anyway, so... This is Too Brad For You Does Canadian Politics. Thank you to the guys for, for calling in for this. Uh, and like I said, if you're, if you're not into politics, um, I don't know, skip it. But uh, if you are, here you go. Uh, oh, and we do touch on um, 
some American stuff at the end of primaries. Uh, all right, so thank you. That is it. If you enjoy the show, please do subscribe. Uh, please do rate and comment on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you're getting your podcasts. That does help us a lot. Follow us on Twitter at 2 brad for you or on Instagram at 2 brad for you But really, the main thing is if you want, if you can, subscribe, rate, comment, follow. That would be lovely. Here we are. Here is our talk on politics. All right, gentlemen, let's get into it. Uh, all right, well, thank you all for indulging my uh, my need to make a, my political opinions known and for allowing me this time to get into what local, local provincial Canadian politics. We'll start local provincial Canadian. We'll move to national Canadian. If we have time, we'll go international. But that's that's the point of the show. And I'm joined by what three good friends, three what we say, everyday, normal, you know, run-of-the-mill Joe Schmoes with their uh, opinions that are, let's hope, informed, mildly informed. But uh, we'll see where we get. I'm joined, of course, like I was last time we did the politics show by Scott Stoley, Steve Barg over in Calgary. What's up, gentlemen? What's going on? How's it going? Good to, good, good good, to good. see you all. What's that? Good to see you all on this tight new interface. Right, we got a new interface, and we got a brand new contributor representing. Well, I don't know, representing the rural people all the way. You know, originating in Claire's home, now in now in Edmonton, now in the big city of Edmonton. Coleman Wilkinson, thanks for coming along, man. Oh, th- thanks for having me. You have the the insight of uh, Claire's home, North Lethbridge, in Edmonton here. Ooh, he's he's toured all around this province. Everywhere you want to go around this province. As a member of the uh, the craft brewing community, but uh, let's start then provincial. Uh, I'm curious, as I am living abroad, as to what is going on in my home province back home, and really the the current government, the UCP government, because it appears to me that their plan to balance budgets, reduce costs, whatever whatever the the conservative. Uh, you know, dream is to reduce the debt, all of those things. They're going about it one way and one way only, and that is slashing spending, cutting everywhere. Um, I'm curious as to what you guys think of the strategy and whether it's going to eventually wear wear down on the very conservative Alberta population. Uh, and whether you think, yeah, just long term, if this is 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 the way to go with the challenges that Alberta faces, being an oil producing province and the oil industry being what it is, uh, whether it's incentivizing uh, schools, uh, post-secondary education, their funding or the cuts to healthcare that they're teasing through all these various reports. Uh, I'm curious to get your your thoughts on it. And let's start with the new guy, Coleman. What do you think? Um, I think he's kind of following the traditional Alberta playbook of like managing the economy where it's, you do like these basically meaningless cuts, like just little cuts all the time that look good in the media. Like they did one the other day, they did like a small one that they weren't going to supply water and tissues to people um, in courtrooms anymore. 
which is yeah. going to save us absolutely no money, but they get a headline out of it that they're making the tough choices. But at the same time, they're giving tax breaks to giant oil companies, which put us in the same spot deficit-wise we were with the NDP anyway. So we're really not mm-hmm. any far ahead. People mm-hmm. are still losing jobs. We're still running a deficit. And uh, we just get less services for our tax dollars at the end of the day. So mm-hmm. it, uh, it's not going over as well, I don't think, as uh, the traditional conservative governments did with this strategy. But I, I certainly don't think it's, it's helping them right now. It seems very, it reminds me of Ralph Klein, but now you have every time there's a story about uh, cutting tissues or water or coffee for the paramedics or something like this, there's a million tweets about it. Uh, Scott, what what do you think about the strategy of cut, cut, cut? I assume the playbook has to be, you know, year one of our new government, we're just going to get all the negative headlines for the cuts, we're going to make all these cuts. And then presumably maybe closer to election time, like, oh, we found some money for, you know, your kids' schools. Vote for us. Um, I, I wouldn't say I support the strategy really at all. They came out with a commission whose recommendations were basically, yeah, just cut spending all over the place and no real discussion of any sort of tax increases. The corporate tax cut is interesting for me because I'm generally, I would say, in favor of low corporate taxes because... The nerds who seem to know better than me seem to think that, you know, corporate taxes aren't the best way. So, of course, they cut corporate taxes, which I could support in theory if they were to, say, implement a sales tax, which the nerds say is a really good tax. But, of course, there's no discussion for, uh, you know, no real plan for that. And I appreciate that it's politically unpopular, but a bunch of these other cuts are also politically unpopular. And you might as well, if you're going to do those sorts of things, do it in the first year of your mandate. Um, I feel like it will wear thin and then they'll win again anyway, no matter what, because (laughs) that's what I've been conditioned to believe as a lifelong Albertan that uh, they can virtually do no wrong. And also I think a lot of these cuts um, amongst, certainly amongst the UCP base, I think there is a disdain for public service in general. So when you're cutting, you know, the teachers and the nurses and whatnot, people getting paid with tax dollars, then that's going to play well to a certain base because, you know, those guys sucking at the teach, <laughs> allegedly, or, you know, so the view goes. But um, I don't think the strategy is really going to work because I don't think you can really cut deep enough to eliminate the deficit without essentially catastrophic political consequences when you're going to have, you know, kids with no classes or patients with no nurses and that sort of thing. So I'm not convinced it's going to work, but I imagine it's playing well to the base, if nothing else. Mm -hmm. Steve, what do you think? uh, I mean, your thoughts of of those those, uh, comments. And then also, I'm curious about, yeah, like the messaging behind this, because it does seem that there's like, the message is this is we have to do this. This is the only way. And like Scott mentioned, there's not even a, a hint of talking about tax and they've been really aggressive in terms of fighting biting back at anyone that seems to uh disagree what do you think of uh the strategy and the messaging we'll say cool yeah i'd love to get into all that um first of all it's great to be here with you guys scott i love your in-depth uh serious uh analysis of the issues you do a great job uh coleman really looking forward to the sharp, uh, sarcastic 
witticisms that I think we're going to uh, have coming our way. So, and Brad, I uh, I always love being on the podcast with you. I love the way that you ask a question uh, in a way that I know how I'm supposed to answer it. So uh, great work, Brad. You can okay. answer any way you want. I'm just messing with you, Brad. <laughs> I'm just messing with you. Uh, anyway, uh, like, I, I'll just pick up on what uh, Scott uh, was talking about there. First of all, I think the kind of – I do believe that the true test of these uh, this strategy will be in the year two and three of of uh, their uh, governance. Um, for sure, there's been cuts. Like, there's no dancing around the fact that there's been cuts. I think that uh, in in some circles, it, it is a little bit exaggerated. The cuts, uh, for example, I, I you just compared them. I, I forget who compared them to the Ralph Klein cuts. They're they're really not even close mm. uh, in terms of percentages. I think Ralph Klein got up to like uh, cut about twenty one percent of the budget over uh, three uh, three year period or something like this. Those numbers aren't exactly on, but I think this one is about one point five percent of cuts, and and I don't think they're going to be followed up with massive massive cuts in years. Uh, two and three, I think it'll be a little bit more of the same. Um, and in in real in reality, they have raised income taxes. They've just done it in a way, their coy way of, of doing things where they can raise taxes and not talk about a tax raise and have no one talk about a tax raise. Uh, they've raised income taxes through uh, de-indexing the uh, benefits from the from inflation, uh, tax credits from inflation, so which it, it works out to be about uh, $300 increase per Alberta family. Um, this is all per uh, economist, UFC economist Trevor Toom. I don't know if any of you guys ever read any of his articles, but he's got a, yeah, a great, I'm a uh, fan. really great uh, way of, of getting into the actual numbers rather than the kind of uh, – the narrative or the hysteria or whatnot. Um, so there, there is a real dollar tax raise, also a tax bracket creep, which uh, was kind of put an end to through indexing the the uh, brackets to inflation. Now that's gone. So now all of our taxes have gone up, which is, I mean, what we're kind of clamoring for in a way. Um, but they've just done it in a way that no one's talking about it. And, and it's almost identical um, to the tax effects of the carbon tax. So it, pretty much I, the identical, almost a dollar for dollar uh, increase that the carbon tax had. But as uh, Trevor Toom puts uh, in his article, the uh, rage per dollar quotient is uh, quite a bit lower with these uh, increases. So, I, I mean... Look, like I'm, I'm in a complete agreement with uh, you, Scott. The way forward is a sales tax, a consumption tax, and I think carbon pricing is is a part of that as well. They need to have both. Um, this government is is failing to be upfront with what they're doing. They're they're not really upfront with the cuts either. They're just saying, no, no, we're not cutting anything. Clearly, there's cuts. Um, so I, I wish they'd be a little bit more upfront with how they're how they're managing it but in in some ways they're being successful um 
the corporate income or the corporate uh, tax lowering is obviously like try to stay, trying to stay competitive with the uh, United States who went through a, a massive uh, corporate tax slash a couple of years ago. Um, I don't know. I like for that. That's very much in the public opinion. Um, I, I just want to see a, a measured result of that. Like what, what would that, what would success look like for that corporate tax cut would be obviously uh, further investment in the province. And uh, I think that is only going to play out in years kind of two and three of the of the government so we'll see if it works but i i do i would like to see a measured analysis of whether or not that actually worked or if that uh, didn't work at all so uh um yeah we'll we'll see how it goes as, as far as their control of the messaging brad yeah this is this government is is uh like very heavy on the propaganda and i don't i don't use that term lightly they, they're they're very 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 uh Consistent on controlling the messaging, um, they get very like I, I don't know, uh, upset or sad when other people talk uh, about them in, in in negative terms around the around the world because they put themselves on the world stage. Um, so, yeah, I mean that's that's something that I find distasteful as a resident of Alberta, but we'll. Uh, We'll see. I, I'm not convinced that they will make it a, into. I'm not as convinced as Scott is that they will make it into uh, automatically be voted back in. But I, I think it's uh, we have a couple years to see how how things go. So. Hmm. Hmm. Well, this is. I mean, you make good points about the about the numbers and the nuts and bolts. And I think you know, like and Scott, like you mentioned, when you're one year into to a budget and and a governance and everything like that, you'll see how it plays out. I mean, and I think you can look at uh, the specific cuts and the numbers and make your own decisions as whether you think those are right or wrong moves to make. And we'll see how those come around. The thing that, and I, maybe this is a product of me living uh, abroad and getting the message from, you know, not living, you know, through different media sources or Twitter, you know, all these things. But it does seem that I'm curious about the messaging of it. Um, because there seems to be the playbook of, you know, we're, n- we're not going to raise taxes. We would never raise taxes. That's not what we do. And yet they're coyly raising taxes. Um, you know, we're all about cutting spending. We're going to cut spending, but we're going to waste $30 million on the war room and all this other, <laughs> and all this other stuff where, you know, all of this, there seems to be these contradictory messages. And to me, it looks like I would be distrustful of this government. And I, the next thing I want to get onto as well is the messaging, the sort of blame it on the on the Trudeau uh, message or blame it on Ottawa message. Anyone want to jump in on on the messaging of it all and what that? How does that make you feel? I mean, and again, Steve, I don't want to be too leading with my thoughts here, but as an outsider, it makes me not like this government and it makes me not trust this government. I think there's uh, a number of stories that have come out about people getting jobs uh, that were campaign donors, and there seems to be some corruption there that hasn't been rooted out, and they are still under investigation for potentially cheating in the leadership election. Yeah, but they got rid of the guy that was looking into that. (laughs) It's not a big deal. (laughs) I think the... 
I, I kind of been thinking about the messaging. I think it's kind of a strategy because I think the provincial conservatives and the federal conservatives are kind of working in tandem on this, where the provincial conservatives can play up the Western alienation thing and kind of shore up that vote for the federal conservatives. And the federal conservatives can focus on Ontario, Quebec, which they need to do to win elections. Because mm-hmm. you don't win a, a conservative government can't uh, win an election, or a conservative party can't win a federal election in Canada by focusing on Alberta. There's just no point of it. Mm-hmm. But Jason Kenney's now set up in Alberta. He plays at the Western alienation thing, kind of teetering right on that line of being a separatist, which we all know he isn't because he's lived his entire life in the federal government. Um, so he gets to fire these shots at Trudeau from Alberta and whoever, we'll talk about the conservative race later, obviously, but whoever the leader of the next federal conservative party will be can focus on Ontario, Quebec, where that's the battleground for them. That's the only way that they can form government is winning in Quebec and Ontario. That's kind of what I think. Mm-hmm. It's a shorter answer than Barb's, but hopefully it's good. <laughs> well, I don't know. Like, did, did Scott, what do you think? Do you... Are you as uh, distrustful of this uh, government as as I am, or or what do you what do you oh, think? Is it all yeah. just politics? No, I would say you can put me as supremely distrustful of this government in <laughs> you know many ways. Just their messaging, it's always you know borderline lying. Like to say, okay, there's you know we're not cutting education. We're just there's going to be you know forty thousand more students or however many more, and there's no more money. So, I mean, you're cutting per student. We're getting a bit, playing a bit loose with the definition so we can squeeze it to say that it's not a cut. Mm-hmm. Um, we might get into tech frontier later. Like Jason Kenney is just essentially out and out lying about, you know, just the numbers. It's it's quite Trumpy, I would say, you know, that he kind of puts out a number. There's going to be $70 billion in government revenues or emissions are half the, you know, half, less than half the barrels in North America neither of these things are true and it's been pointed out to him, you know, it's been debunked and then he just keeps saying it. Um, and then it, you know, becomes part of the, part of the narrative. Don't you want $70 billion in benefits? You just seem to hammer home that message enough times and then people will just believe it rightly or wrongly. Um, I also think certainly blame the NDP is the message for virtually everything. And I'm curious to, certainly curious to see how the next few years play out. Um, because if you listen to Jason Kenney during the election, the Alberta's oil industry woes were 98% the result of decisions by Rachel Notley and Justin Trudeau. Whereas I would say they're probably 98% the result of international oil markets. And there's not a whole lot that either of those two can do about it. Um, and I'd like to see how how that message goes as, you know, at some point you think we can't keep blaming Notley uh, for the woes of the industry. And you essentially ran on a campaign of we're going to bring the oil industry back. Um, and then, of course, we're going to bring in a war room to defend it and clear up all the mistruths. And it's been obviously a debacle making some even international headlines. I think I saw a story on uh, mm-hmm. BBC about how. They got a logo that they stole, and then they got another logo, and it turns out that was stolen. And now, you know, $30 million, and you can't get a logo. I know a guy, our friend Seb. You just, literally, you could hire him. He'd Did the logo a great for this logo. show. Yeah, there you go. You do a great job. <laughs> we got a $30 million budget. You can fit it in. So there's just some 
like rank incompetence there that I think makes me nervous about if these are supposedly the best people they could find for this job and they're doing an objectively terrible job. You read from proper communications professionals who are like, this is just not how you do this sort of thing. Um, so if that's who they have running the most front facing shop they've got, then how, you know, how are the people behind closed doors doing it? It does not fill me with confidence in the slightest as to, you know, the competence of this government mm -hmm. and their messaging does not make me inspire any confidence as far as the honesty of this government goes. Well, and that's the thing that, I mean, is it incompetence or is it, you know, the, there's the other, and maybe this is a bit tinfoil hatty and you guys could tell me if, if I'm out to lunch here, but the other thing is the, the implication is it's not even just incompetence. It's just a way to, to hide $30 million or give people jobs, give friends jobs, you know, that it's just corruption. Cause you look at the, there was an article just the other day. I can't remember in which, uh, national paper, I think the national observer, maybe, uh, or national post, um, saying people should start asking where the money's going because you look at the offices, you look at the website, you look at what they're doing and it's not a $30 million a year product. It just, it just isn't like, there's no way that that costs and the way that the government has set up this, uh, corporation, it's, um, protected from freedom of information acts, the normal freedom of information acts. So they purposefully set it up in a way that people cannot access where the money is going. And that just seems to me incredibly shady. Uh, and then you have, like I alluded to before, the justice minister giving another job into one of these public inquiries into, you know, I can't remember what it was, but to decide where to cut money from um, to a campaign donor failed to disclose that that money. And this person gets a, or no, it was a public inquiry to, again, root out uh misinformation against the oil industry and it's a thirty thousand three hundred thousand dollar a year job so i don't know i just economic, essentially ec just went went to his campaign donor there yeah. was a good story and friend that he recently. used to work with so i mean i don't yeah. know steve we'll let you jump in for another one of your uh long-winded well thought out responses but i'm just I'm yeah i'm i have to say <laughs> i have to say that from afar and uh, with the economics not being of consequence to me it just seems really really gross i really don't like it yeah no you're right it's all a bunch of bullshit isn't it anyway back to you brad um <laughs> <clears throat> you like coleman like that one okay good uh <laughs> no i don't know like so i think the purpose of the war room is fairly is uh, fairly obvious is, is to stoke the emotional base uh, and keep them engaged because they can, uh, you know, they, they're the ones who are really following kind of the war rooms tweets on a day-to-day -day basis. You know, the tweets that aren't so embarrassing that they make international news that is. And have um, to be deleted. And have to be later deleted and apologized for. And yeah. like, Oh, was that anti-Semitic? I don't know. I guess we'll just delete it then. Um <laughs> Yeah, so yeah, it's to stoke the base, and yeah, thirty million dollars goes to our buddies. That's just a side benefit. I don't think it's tinfoil hatty, but I don't think it's the driver of of why it exists. Uh, I think it's to continue to kind of pump up the emotional um, kind of response of of the Albertans that voted for 
the UCP and to keep that because that it's only going to work in their favor. Um, yeah, the war room's obviously been uh, super embarrassing. I mean, all the way through. There's uh, there's been like five or six instances of just like uh, uh, what the fuck, um, and, and it's been existed for what six months. So if they're going on a, a once per month what the fuck uh, ratio, that's pretty bad. Um, <laughs> we won't break down the <clears throat> the rage per dollar. Uh, I'm, I'm yeah, I'm there, the, but... this shows all about ratios. Uh, yeah. <laughs> So anyway, like, <clears throat> no, I, I, I $30 million, where's it going? Is it accounted for? It's no surprise to me that it's not accounted for. I think you can say $30 million as a government and say $30 million is going towards this. I think people just, they're just like, yeah, sounds about right. Man, government's expensive. Jeez. <laughs> I don't know what they're doing, but God, yeah, goddamn, government's expensive, isn't it? 30 million bucks for some paid wire tweets that make no sense yeah sure why not right sign me up so uh i i don't know like yeah and kenny traipses around uh the country and the continent uh with his messaging like you're saying on the tech mind scott and other stuff and this is he's he's it's like he's a representative of uh alberta oil and gas uh, sorry I, I i don't even think that that's like the worst thing in the world if you're also representing uh, all the other things going on in Alberta, all the other businesses, all the other uh, kind of sectors, then good. I think he should, he should be repping for Alberta interests. But uh, if he's so focused on this everywhere he goes that it's like, uh, I don't know, there's, there's lots of economic data that says uh, Alberta's in for its worst economic year now uh, since 2013, which is when the recession Kind of started and and there was lots of years where we were climbing out of the recession and, and you would say well we're not in a recession anymore well now it, it looks like the economic data looks like we are so I, like even if and and even if the oil and gas has a little bit of a rebound uh you still could be because you're so focused you're so your tunnel vision is so focused on one single issue you could have a province that is an economic decline with rising oil and gas investment. That would be insane to me. That would be like, that is the exact opposite of what, of, of uh, what you should have. What you should be focused on is, is the uh, growing the diversity of the province and then uh, letting the oil and gas kind of uh, come back and be strong because it will be strong again. Uh, and, uh, and when it does come back, then you've got a burgeoning economy and you have oil and gas, both. So uh, I don't know. That's kind of the Houston model of how to do it. Houston didn't uh, pander to its oil and gas companies when uh, they um, started to, to decline. They said, well, we're going to build up the rest of the, of the city and, and the area from an economic diversity standpoint. And then when the oil and gas becomes strong again, we will uh, will be stronger than ever, and that's that's right now for the city of Houston, right? So, mm-hmm. I don't know. I yeah, am I distrustful of Jason Kenney? I obviously, I mean, c- come on, Jason Kenney's been uh, just he's he's earned distrust through uh, many many years of of uh, his political career of and distrustful activity. That, yeah, I mean, sure. So, 
uh, yeah, I'm not really a big fan. I'm, I don't really trust them, but uh, we'll see what happens. I don't know. I'm I sure. recently had seen a story that I think kind of perfectly captured my thoughts on this government's both, uh, I would say, incompetence and corruption that they were – the CBC had emailed the Justice Minister's press secretary with regard to some questions about how uh, his connections to a law firm that was awarded like a $1 million sole source contract, um, which are legit questions. You know, you shouldn't necessarily just be handing out million dollar contracts to your friends. And two minutes later, they got a response from the press secretary saying, okay, should we go with lie A or lie B on this one? Which one do we want to... And then two minutes after that, they get an email saying, ooh, please disregard previous email. Yeah, that wasn't meant so for you. it just screams of both corruption and brazen incompetence by your press secretary who makes probably $175,000 a year and should be better than that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'd say both, uh, both Barg and Stoli are going to get... Uh complaints from the war room on this because if they're willing to go after the uh the medicine hat news for an editorial <laughs> like they're definitely going after you guys brad your podcast yeah. is next there's going to be when two guys in suits knock at your door from the alberta or the anti-albertan activities commission and mm. uh and we're amen. flying them over to germany first class yeah first they're class, be absolutely staying this, in the marburg ritz yeah mm. yeah this is why i How much uh, does it cost? don't ask this is why i left you know i was uh they i couldn't uh, i couldn't survive in this sort of environment um so we to move it then into the conservative race i think there's a bit of uh parallel here uh, and again it's this is maybe me being the the naive you know, person that I am, idealistic person that I am, I really dislike this style of politics that the Alberta Conservative Party is doing, where it's blame everybody else, um, deflect, uh, you know, lies, you know, uh, corruption, all this stuff, but then say, oh, hey, but you know what? Uh, well, we're, we're fixing the economy, we're fixing the economy. And I've talked to family members back home where they will agree that, you know, there's disgust for the way in which the government is acting, but they're willing to be like, well, but sometimes you got to play dirty to get things done because Ottawa doesn't care about it, you know, all this kind of stuff. And I just wonder if this playbook, because there seems to be a similar playbook in the federal conservative party where their strategy last election largely seemed to be of Trudeau sucks. Doesn't everybody think Trudeau sucks? He's an idiot. He sucks. We got to get him out of here. He's ruining the country. And three quarters of the country disagreed with that. And now we have a conservative, you know, the conservative leader that lost that election to Justin Trudeau, Andrew Scheer, is now on the way out. Uh, and we're gearing up for um, a conservative, uh, the conservatives to elect a new leader in June. Um, doesn't seem like much of a race. It seems like more of a everybody get the hell out of the way for Peter McKay. Um, I don't even really know of who, uh, what other big names are running other than what's his name, Aaron O'Toole. Um, but that is there one more? Who's the other? Leslin Lewis. Yeah, I looked, sure. at, I did that's the only research I did for this was looking into who this person was. So <laughs> when it comes to my time to talk about her, I've got one article of research to back me up. <laughs> I read her entire website, I got the whole thing, which is that she will bring common sense, good policies to this country. Well, I'll well, just go fuck myself. What they are <laughs> specifically, 
hard to determine from the web, but they will be common sense and better than Justin Trudeau's. Well, I mean, I, I understand that you always have to have the, the you know, we're going to do better than the other guy, the, that, that narrative in opposition. And, and, you know, I say this, you know, Justin Trudeau deserves a lot of criticism for things that he's done. And, you know, you can do that. But it just seems that the, you know, even as Peter McKay trotted out his campaign, the whole uh, thrust of his his first, you know, forays back into the race were uh, Trudeau's a sissy. He does yoga. I play hockey. You know, these kind of just like very tired, um, pointless, uh, you know, tropes it'll play well in rural alberta exactly but, uh, and this is my point it's like what did they not learn this strategy and you know again this strategy is it goes on in alberta and it can work in alberta because people will be like yeah but the economy but this this that this is not a good strategy nationally i don't think but it seems that they're going to continue doing it do you see anything turning around and uh you know let well let's let's go to coleman first and you could touch on the other people in the in the race, because I think the Aaron O'Toole guy is running this same strategy. And let's hear what you have to say about uh, the third contender and your one article of research. Mm -hmm. uh, basically, all I saw was that she's a Jamaican immigrant and she's been endorsed by the. Let me just take a look here. It's the. Uh, Jamaican I can't remember. Some pro, some pro life pro life group in Canada, which really checks the boxes for conservative politics these days. It's, uh, they just get really bogged down by the social conservative thing. Mm -hmm. The one thing I want to bring up, the, the strategy in the last federal election, I think you're selling them short a bit. It was uh, the one plank was Trudeau is bad. And the other plank was drink a lot of milk. <laughs> Andrew Shear talked a lot about drinking milk. I don't know how much <laughs> the, like, the dairy farmers of Canada are paying into the conservatives, but uh, they really want us drinking milk all the time. Oh. But I just watched the Oscars and was told not to drink milk. So now I'm conflicted. Well, that's the liberal elite telling you not to drink milk. <laughs> uh, I drink milk all the time. I'm drinking milk in this podcast right now. <laughs> right. But uh, I think the conservatives, especially federally, they have a very, and I'm not a conservative voter usually, probably never, but I do respect that they have a very difficult campaign to run every time they do federally because I think the Liberal Liberal Party of Canada, their supporters are kind of like Republicans in the States where they get on the same page really quickly. Mm -hmm. It's like if someone brings up, it's like everyone gets in a line and votes on it. It's no problem. Or a, a federal conservative leader, you have to, you have the Prairie Province conservatives you have to deal with. You have the uh, Toronto fiscal conservatives you have to deal with. You have the rural Ontario conservatives, and then you have Quebec, which is just a wild card all the time. So for them to pick a candidate, you need someone that somehow appeals to all four of these groups. And while I agree that this, this race right now is just a coronation of Pete, Peter McKay, I think if Rona Ambrose does, is not willing to run, he's the clear choice for leader right now. Mm -hmm. Like I don't even see anyone that comes close. John Baird been, maybe, but uh, he said, no, I think he said he, he wasn't. Said no. Leader. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think, Stephen Harper sees, because Stephen Harper's the genius behind this Canadian federal conservative party. And he's clearly got behind John McKay as, uh, or not, Peter McKay. Mm -hmm. I know politics. I know their names. I know everything. Um, <laughs> Peter McKay as the obvious choice to run the conservative party. 
I think he's the only one that really has a shot because they went through an actual leadership campaign last time and it spit out Andrew Shear, mm-hmm. which was a, a gluten-free Wonder Bread loaf of a candidate. Like, <laughs> what the hell did anyone see in that guy? <laughs> and then when you have like the best chance to like make him a legitimate business candidate is to trot out that he was almost an insurance salesman. He's close. <laughs> He's really yeah. close. He almost pushed across that line. So that, like, the actual mechanisms they have in place to choose a leader will spit out the worst candidate most of the time. I think they've learned that this time. They've pushed everyone that could challenge Peter McKay out of the way. They've brought in like this O'Toole guy and then this other person that I don't really know is kind of like token outside candidates. But this is all the way them pushing Peter McKay through like and for them, I think it's not a bad strategy. He's the only guy that I could see actually running that party right now if mm-hmm. Rona Ambrose isn't willing to step up. Well, and he, you know, in the past, he led the progressive conservative party, which I would think that, like, you know, I agree with you that the liberal supporters, they they get in line and, and, and they vote together. Um, but there was a progressive conservative party in the past uh, that if I remember correctly, focused less on social conservative issues and was more progressive yeah and he they led had one, party. And they he, had one but it also led to splitting the right wing vote and got exactly. in power for an entire decade pretty much right like exactly. you cannot win a like they cannot split the vote they, this is the only sustainable way for them to be in power these days but i i what i guess i'm thinking is that there has to be you know there is people like until the liberal government like this is how government has seemed to work in can federal government has seemed to work in canada one stays in power long enough to piss enough people off and do something so egregious that then we switch to the other one. And that seems to be what, what will happen here. But, you know, there, I, with so many people voting against that strong social conservative sort of prairie conservative uh, candidate in Andrew Scheer, you would think that they would try and run somebody that would be a bit more progressive and would drop all of this uh, social stuff and the, the dumb attacks on Trudeau doing yoga or whatever it is, you know. And Peter yeah. McKay, I thought, would have been that guy. But it looked like, well, he, you know, think, at the beginning of it, he just jumped right into it. So I don't know. Well, and that's, that's kind of where I was going to go. And I'm rather confused that it seems this entire race is essentially a coronation of Peter McKay, which is fine. I mean, typically in a leadership race, you know, you're in a right-wing party, you're going to have to be further to the right with your messaging than you're going to be for the, you know, for the general electorate because you have to win, you know, the base. the base, and then you have to appeal to the masses. Peter McKay essentially has already won as far as, you know, there seems virtually no chance anyone else is going to win. You'd think you'd jump straight to the more, you know, easy-to-digest countrywide messaging, and I mean, I don't think it seems that they haven't learned anything from the last election to say, you know, carbon taxes are our hill to die on when I think the majority of the countries accepted that it's a reasonable idea and the places that hate it are going to vote for you anyway. You know, it doesn't seem sensible when he's talking about conscious rights, you know, conscience rights for doctors, which is obviously like code word for abortions and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, other kind of social conservative hot button issues. Why go into it? I feel like there's no appetite for Canadians, you know, again, that's going to play well in rural Alberta. It's not going to play well in Toronto. 
you need the votes in Toronto. What are you doing? Mm-hmm. Um, though as someone who's not generally a fan of the Conservative Party, absolutely, burn your own house down. <laughs> sure. But also, I would like a sensible Conservative opposition. Yes, um, yeah. With, you know, give me better ideas and I'll vote for you. Instead of saying, well, we have a bunch of hand-waving about climate change. Here's our better plan that Trevor Toome thinks is better. Because mm-hmm. um, we're all Toome or, fans here. All Toome fans. And I would say, as a shout-out to Toome, that he's very good in his nonpartisanship. It's just the facts and the numbers and, um, you know, will call out or will either call out or send congrats to anyone for, you know, it's just about their policy and is it good or not. Mm-hmm. That's ideally, I'm probably not there mentally, but I'd like to think that I'd like to approach each party's ideas and say, you know, like I voted for the Liberal Party last time, kind of biting my, you know, not really enthusiastically, but I did. But I wasn't like, go blackface. I'm, you know, he's our guy. So, no, this is bad. And uh, if the Conservative Party comes out with an idea, a better climate change plan, maybe I'll vote for you. Yeah. But I think there is, I think it. there is swing voters to be had, especially in, in Toronto and like the sort of surround the suburbs of Toronto uh, area. But uh, I just, it doesn't seem like, well, we'll see. I mean, they have until June, I guess, to get this thing over with and then move on to the uh, the general, um, whenever that might be. Uh, Steve, you want to jump in on the the Peter McKay tour, the the race? Yeah, sure thing. Uh, first of all, I just want to kind of question one of your numbers, Brad, uh, when you said three quarters of people voted against Trudeau. Did I hear that right? Or I, I think I said Trudeau. that. I'm happy to be corrected on that. Well, it's not even close. I mean, come on. Uh, uh, a third of people voted for Trudeau and more people voted for the Conservative Party. No, I was counting the everyone not uh, voting not Conservative. So NDP, etc. Yeah. Oh, I see. Okay. So yeah. then two thirds. Yeah, sure. Good. Okay, cool. Well, I know I, the, the reason I point that out is because I think there is a, a path back for the Conservative government i think i agree with you guys like 100 percent. i think if they provide a sensible like you said scott if it's sensible I, i'll vote for any party i don't i don't give uh, a hoot um i will vote for uh, the conservatives and if they give me a sensible uh man or woman who's got good ideas uh and is presents them in a way that is uh makes sense and of course only if they play hockey and don't do yoga then i uh, <laughs> i'll vote for them I'm just kidding. I'm doing yoga right now. I don't know if you guys can see. But you can How do you get your that. legs over top of your head like that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've got a book called uh, Doing Yoga While Sitting on Your Ass and uh, Talking to Your Buddies. So there you go. Go get that it's on book. Amazon. Yeah. I think <clears throat> I think uh, Ronna Ambrose was like, I don't know, I, she made a lot of sense to me, but she also made a lot even more sense to me when she said, no, I don't want this fucking job. I'm like, yeah, now I want you in the job even more, <laughs> right? So, uh, yeah, she's out. Peter McKay, I don't know. Was Peter McKay, like, so he used to be the, uh, what, the, the foreign affairs guy for Harper? I think he was uh, defense minister. Defense minister, yeah. All right, well, uh, I guess no one attacked our country in that time. Good track <laughs> record there. So we'll see. <laughs> 
Didn't Did, start World War III. Yeah. We're setting the bar uh, high here. Yeah. Do you think this third candidate is a kamikaze candidate? Do you think they're – that's got to be the playbook now. Get this kamikaze candidate to take out O'Toole. Mm-hmm. And then, I, don't, I don't know. Like, who are you really – like? because in yeah, Alberta they, we had the kamikaze candidate, but like Brian Jean was a legitimate candidate. This O'Toole oh, guy is literally an O'Toole. Yeah. He's not there for any reason. <laughs> <laughs> He teacher coming up soon with that phrase on it, by the way. He is literally uh, an old tool. Colin <laughs> yeah. so, had that written in Sharpie on his notes, yeah. real big letters. Don't forget to say old tool. Uh, yeah, a couple more was... zingers coming your way, coming up here soon. <laughs> so I don't know, like, uh, yeah, it, it makes sense to go back towards the progressive, go back to when you were progressive conservatives. Remember that? Uh, go back towards that model. It's their only way forward. It's like rugby. You got to go back when you want to go, uh, when you want to go forward. Um, I'll take your word on that. Sure. Well, I'm playing rugby in my chair right now. I don't know. know (laughs) Is that what that is? I was wondering why your arm was moving so much. Yeah. yeah, yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, I think we should, uh, we have to touch on uh, the protests that is going on in Canada right now, because it seems to be one of the biggest stories in Canada right now, uh, you know, and for, for Canadian terms, you know, this is, people are inconvenienced and they do not like it. Uh, but it's also brought up uh, a number of, um, a, a number of issues. I think this, this story actually highlights, there was, you know, talk about um, the RCMP, the RCMP heavy hand, handedness, when dealing with protesters and the media. Uh, and then really this kind of boils down to a lot of law surrounding uh, land rights and indigenous um, title to certain land. Um, so I don't know, you know, again, I'm looking, I'm getting stories from all over uh, here from abroad. What, who wants to maybe give us the skinny from, from, from the ground, we'll say. And uh, maybe lay it out a little bit and then um, give your thoughts, give your take. Oh, I'd I'd like to jump in there. I get a feeling that I'm on a roll, so I'm surging. (laughs) Steve, I I see that you're actually at a protest right now. Yeah, that's right. uh... It's sitting in my chair. And he's (laughs) actually rolling on camera right now. It's amazing. It's great, yeah. Yeah. Let's right, first so, like, uh, just frame what what's happening, maybe uh, to. Oh well, I don't I don't want to do that. I thought that was your job. Okay. Um, I... No, no, I'll do it. Let's let's frame. Let's frame it. Let's see if I can do Brad's thing. Uh, so basically, there's the uh, Coastal Link pipeline, LNG pipeline. It's being built out from uh, I think kind of Fort Saint James or Fort Saint John, one of these areas, out towards. Um, uh, Kitimat, so basically cover uh, goes through all of uh, across northern British Columbia. That's been uh, planned and improved for over the deck or over the last decade, really. Uh, it's been it's been kind of moving forward, and they have the approval of um, the BC government, the Alberta government, the federal government, and uh, all twenty one band councils. Uh, that are along the route of the pipeline. So the Indigenous Band Council, the elected uh, leadership, all approved the pipeline to go through, which is uh, like, that's a miracle in itself that uh, everyone wants this pipeline. 
holy shit, that's like uh, that's that should be uh, news right there. Uh, everybody, all of these elected officials want the pipeline, but of course there is a, a group of um, uh, people in in the area who very much don't want the pipeline, and they're led by the what are called hereditary chiefs, which is a <clears throat> uh, another subset of leaders, uh, indigenous leaders of community leaders uh, who are uh, put in kind of a leadership pro- uh, leadership role through a process of like I I don't really understand the leadership nomination process, but it's not they call they're called hereditary. It's not like they're just born into it. It's like kind of partly they're born into it, but then they also are uh, through some ceremony uh, and through their actions and merit, they uh, are uh, kind of nominated, I guess, and mm-hmm. given these names and titles. And they um, have uh, some form of leadership in the communities as well as the elected chiefs. Mm-hmm. So, um <clears throat> Obviously, like my understanding of it is very from an outsider's point of view, and I've, I try to read as much about it as I can, but it's um, it, it doesn't seem as clear to me as someone who's reading about it uh, a lot exactly who is kind of tipping the scales of power in in the region, who's who are the real decision makers. Um, it seemed to me like that that was the elected uh, council. So that, I don't know, because they went through a democratically uh, election election process, right? So I don't know. And then so they're shutting, now, now that they protested, I, I, I'm really framing this now. Uh, the, uh, Doing a great job. Uh, yeah, so it's the uh, Wetsu, Wetan peoples who are against the pipeline going through their lands protested at the point of construction and they were arrested by the RCMP and basically that sparked uh, outrage across the country from different groups I'd say most of them indigenous groups although some groups are just kind of protesters I guess and uh, they are shutting down the rail they're shutting down different roads they're blocking access to certain buildings across the country. So it's turned into a big uh, nationwide kind of shutdown protest with the, um, I believe, the stated purpose of um, trying to disrupt the economic workings of a country. So that is, I believe, what the purpose is. Um, although the, this is the thing, this is where it gets complex. You talk to 20 different people why they're protesting and you'll get 20 different answers, mm-hmm. right? And maybe one out of 20 will say something about an LNG pipeline. Um, obviously, those are all made up numbers, but that's kind of the sense that I get from reading online. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, I think a lot of people have jumped on board with the protest around across the country. I mean, there is very specific issues regarding who speaks for the land that is being that the pipeline is being uh built on and you could look there's this goes back to you know the indian act which you know forced this democratic system upon the uh different tribes 
uh, and clans throughout the country. So there's issues there regarding um, each uh, nation, each um, clan, tribe, whatever the correct word is, will have a different opinion on to how valid that uh, elected system is versus the hereditary system of chiefs. There's, uh, you know, so there's, there's, there's a lot of complexity there. And I think, Steve, what you pointed out as well is that the people that have jumped on um, also seems to be, you know, these, these bigger issues, uh, not regarding the specific land, but reconciliation, you know, all these terms that have been thrown out over the last year of um, indigenous rights and, you know, kind of a more uh, awareness around that. There seems to be a lot of people that are just like, hey, Indigenous people are protesting a pipeline. I'm in. I hate, you know, climate change and oil and gas and, you know, colonialism and all this stuff and, and jumping in. And I think that that oh. pisses a lot of people off. A lot of people. You, that, said, you said the C word. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, are we allowed to say that on here? <laughs> it's the Internet. You say whatever you want. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. yeah. But and so I think that there's a lot of like that's you know you get a lot of resistance to these uh, uh, protests um, because of that. But I mean, how much of this is like? I don't know. I'm conflicted on it. I'm very conflicted on it because um, you know digging into and reading a lot of like trying to find a lot of um, you know news sources that are written from uh, First Nations people, whether it's APTN or or other ones. You know they're though the perspective that i'm getting there is that look at this is a complicated situation with our leadership and the way that we run things um but we're not that fractured on this and we think that you know t there's a, there's a 1997 court case that basically um in their opinion uh says that hereditary chiefs have title to all of the unceded territory um, outside of the reserves, and the reserves are led by the bound, band council. And so apparently there's a Supreme Court decision. Obviously, I haven't read all the writings of, this, of the judge in that, in that decision that says that hereditary chiefs have title over unceded land. And most of the land in northern BC is unceded territory, meaning that it was never uh, changed hands over uh, a treaty and stuff like that. So it seems like there's legal precedent there. And the other complaint that I was get, hearing out of those sources was um, that LNG uh, never c consulted with everyone. They went directly to the elected chiefs, which is, again, in some members of the community view, those are sort of already, you know, th those people, their hands are tied. They, they, that form of leadership was put in by the Indian Act, so it was never really chosen by them. It was put there, being like, hey, you guys have to be democratic. Here you go. And in a lot of cases, those those they don't have a lot of power to resist a corporation that's you know coming in and wanting to build a pipeline on their land. So I don't know. I don't know what to think. Uh, but I'm curious as to how it all gets portrayed as like, oh well, there's this system of 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 leadership, and we don't know what's going on, and they don't know what's going on, and why don't they just figure it out with each other? And who's protesting over what when it's like, well. Any protest is going to be nebulous and any issue is going to have, uh, you know, parts of the community that agree and parts of the community that don't agree. So it's like, is that really the story or should the story be, well, is there legal precedent for this? And the fact that 
we don't really, you know, we've never really acknowledged any legal pre- precedent for these issues because it's always just been kind of swept under the rug being like, uh, we'll deal with that later. Uh, it's better if it's just a murky gray zone because then we can kind of just steamroll through the opinions of First Nations people. That was my long rant answer on this. I don't know where I was going with it, but I'll leave it well, to I someone else. To uh, it's any... I think what's going to happen is what we traditionally do with any of these issues with uh, Aboriginal protests is that we debate it a bit as it's happening. And then we just uh, we safely kick the can down the road for next time. (laughs) We never actually resolve them at all. Right. We talk about reconciliation. We talk about all this stuff. We give it like just lip service, essentially. And then we just kick the can down the road. And then next time we'll have a. We'll have a solution to this. It's uh, it's really a tough thing. I see both sides. I'm gonna like this is the typical Canadian tap dancing around this issue. I'm gonna give you no strong opinions on it at all. <laughs> it's gonna be great. I see the side where like, like especially the rail disruptions are like really affecting the economy. Like there's certain raw materials and chemicals that have to be transported via rail. That farm goods. A lot of, yeah, a lot of like water treatment stuff is being like. Like municipalities' uh, stocks are running low because the trains aren't running, and for God's sakes, via rail isn't transporting people by train right now. You know how many Canadians rely on via rail to get around the country? I think there's about a hundred that go from London to Toronto every day, and that's I don't know. Well, what if I told you that you could take a train from, uh, say, Calgary to Winnipeg? way slower than a plane but also more expensive <laughs> that's the rail for you um but also i understand the there is a slippery slope to stopping protests mm-hmm. that i understand why like the rcmp and the government of canada are hesitant to intervene in this because one wrong move in the optics can be really really bad on this mm-hmm and so, like I said, I was going to tap dance around this and give you no honest opinion. I have uh, no idea how to solve this. And I'm willing to just kick it down the road and see what happens. But and this is, I guess what I would say, is like there's like diving into some of this in, in a way that I've never really done before. There is, that's the problem is that by kicking it down the road is like we have these court cases that have been sort of decided on and then appealed and then never brought back to trial. Uh, and you know, if you're taking a, a very hard, uh, you know, anti-colonialism side, you would say that that's done on purpose. It's done on purpose to hamstring the First Nations communities and never give uh, a clear answer as to what their rights are, in order that we yeah. can just, you know, extract resources and stuff. Uh, and I don't know. I mean, I don't know what the motivations are behind it, but it kind of seems like that because we well, have I think the, the motivations are what you just said. Like, that's yeah. 100%. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, that's, that's, that's kind of what I'm saying is that's our strategy is like, we'll just keep doing that yeah. and we'll give lip service to these issues, but we won't actually do anything. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, that's just kind of the, the history of Canada right there. That's but how we've dealt is with this. Is this, uh, could this be a, a tipping point where some actual change gets no. made well, I was going to go to Scott. He's also shaking his head. Scott, what uh, do you think? No, but uh, I'm, I really don't know as far as the, you know, the ins and outs of the legalities. Um, I would say my thoughts on how I think it should go. One, I think there's a serious irony to shutting down the trains as part of 
an ostensible climate protest, since trains are like by a country mile the most efficient way to move things on land. I imagine the people who aren't on the Via Rail are now driving in cars. So you're not quite getting, the, you know, it's just, it seems a bit silly. That's also kind of nitpicky. I mean, the point of a protest is to, to fuck shit up. Like, that's the point. So, you know. Stand on the road and make them take the train would be uh, a more sensible. <laughs> make them take the rail everywhere. Yeah, but uh, yeah, and I, I, think, I, I get I get what you're saying, but I think that this also happens too when we have these kind of protests. People start being like, "Well, why didn't you do this? Why didn't it's?" And it's kind of misses the point for me. Yeah, and that's that's just kind of a bit of an irony, but uh, a bit of a sidebar there. I think as far as shutting the trains down go, I think at some point you have to be a country with the rule of law and maybe I'll sound a bit more, you know, right wing or whatnot, but at some point you just don't get to stand on the train tracks because when they're waiting for the chlorine to treat the water in municipalities, you know, I'm absolutely a hundred percent in favor of people's right to protest, but obviously like any other right, that's not unlimited and has to come with certain caveats. Like you don't get to shut the trains down because like how many, tens or hundreds of millions or billions of dollars does it cost economy wide to you know to shut all the trains down well, who's paying them mm -hmm. maybe that'd be the deal you pay five billion dollars you can shut down the trains but it's not um i think there has to be reasonable limits and you can't be having people for you know an extended period of time just shutting down you know national infrastructure i think as far as the building of the pipeline goes i think i'm in it's hard because there has to be, at some point, I guess, the overwhelming majority has to prevail. I think in a democracy, when you have, you know, 20 of 21 tribes along the route are all saying, yes, we want, you know, we, we, we the people have spoken. And obviously not everyone in those tribes, same with in amongst the Wet'suwet'en, or certainly you can find people who are, you know, want the jobs for the most part from the pipeline construction. And I don't know, obviously, how we get to this point. But I think by analogy, like if I my house is on the route of a proposed future highway and everyone, you know, it's just going to be the best for the country. At some point, the government's just going to say, sorry, that's, you know, mm -hmm. too bad for you. We just have to bulldoze your house. We'll pay you fair value. And then, you know, that because we can't have this one person holding up, you know, the consensus of what everyone not everyone, but say the vast majority feels is a good project. And it seems to give um, to give one hereditary chief in one tribe veto power over an $8 billion pipeline. Um, it seems a bit, it seems insane to me, especially when, as far as I understand it there, it's not as if, you know, we were looking for tweaks X, Y, and Z in this plan. We wanted to go here instead of here. It's simply like under no circumstances will we allow this. Then at some point, and I appreciate it, there is a whole long history of colonialism and, you know, how it's a very going to be hot button because it always touches on Canada's history of racism and exploitation of the indigenous and, you know, essentially conferring no rights and that sort of thing. It would for political reasons, I think be a lot easier if it was a group of white people who really didn't want the train going or the pipeline going through their backyard. Um, but at some point, 
when you get 20 of 21, say we want to do it. Somehow we got to do it. And how we thread that needle, I don't know. But I think we got to, you got to do it. I think, yeah. Again, this comes down to, though, and you mentioned like the rule of law. You know, this is the rule. You know, we have to be a country of a rule of law. But these people are saying that they have the law on their side and it's not being respected. There is this court case that says heredity chiefs have title to this land. And that's the thing is that it's not going through the land. There's They're disputing parts, as I understand it, of the pipeline that don't go through the, the jurisdiction of the elected chiefs. It goes through the dirt, the, the land on the jurisdiction that they claim they have. And that court case happened in 97. I can't remember the name of it. Delo Guama something. It's an indigenous name that I've forgotten, can't pronounce. Uh, and it was kicked down the road. And, you know, the Supreme Court just the minister, the justice, uh, judge rather, agreed with the hereditary chiefs. And then it was appealed or whatever and just never brought back to, to trial. So the, there's an argument that the rule of law, that's exactly what they're saying is that they have the rule of law and that the 21 elected chiefs that, that agreed don't have jurisdiction over this section of land. So it doesn't matter if they agree or not. It's not their, it's not their decision. And they're all they're all Wet'suwet'en as far as I understand. I mean, there's different clans and, and tribes within it, but that is the nation. And it comes back to them saying as well that we didn't have, the the company never spoke to them, never came. They said that they would be willing to speak. And they said that they they, they those negotiations weren't made. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know the specifics of all that. Steve, you're shaking your head, but uh, all right, then. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, <clears throat> uh, thank you for uh, tapping the uh, colonial spike into the ground there, Scott. Uh, I'm going <laughs> to come with my rail hammer and pound it. Mark's going to pound down on this one. Yeah, no, no. Uh, so listen, first of all, let me just start uh, by saying uh, my string of points, which may degrade to rants, uh, I got to say, this is a really difficult sub- subject uh, for me to form a strong opinion on. Uh, it's very difficult, but uh, I did manage to, to form a strong opinion on it. Uh, that is to say, though, if you heard about this story and automatically came out on one side or the other, and you just naturally were with the pro- protesters or naturally against them, then sorry, you didn't you didn't do a good job of thinking. Mm-hmm. You didn't really think this through. Like this is a very complex issue where you need to think about it a lot before you have a strong opinion. Um, first of all, I just to address a couple things, uh, Brad, I, I, I respect the, the news sources that you're reading, but I mean, there's also lots of reporting, lots and lots and lots mm-hmm. of reporting out there that says, that in fact the hereditary chiefs were consulted reached and, and no they weren't consulted they were they attempted to consult with them over and over and over again and they were rebuffed rebuked mm-hmm. not answered uh, they weren't willing to to do any type of, i mean essentially a consultation is is in a in a sense a, a little bit of a give and take a negotiation well if, right. the, if it's a brick wall 
then there is no consultation and no right. consultation can happen at that point. So to say that they were not consulted with, is just a way of saying, well, our consultation was to say no mm-hmm. and not answer you guys. Cause we don't agree with this project. Mm-hmm. And, but if they, if they legally so, hold the title over that land, isn't that their right? I, I don't what. Well, I don't really agree that they legally hold title over that land. I know you cited a precedent of law, but I don't think that, I think there's lots of precedent and I think it's very complicated in this issue where we have um, the, the hereditary chiefs who are uh, given power or control over these areas. I, I don't think that's as cut and dry as you're making it. Yeah. And, and I'm um, just, like I said, I'm just presenting this other side that I've was new to, you know, I, right. I agree and that I, it's I, no, and 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 uh, it's it would seem as if though um, the the hereditary chief system, um, you know, there's lots of stories about people who are stripped of their hereditary chiefdom uh, due to and their naming due to the fact that they opposed this or they they were in favor of this pipeline. Mm-hmm. So I'm very hesitant to. Uh, uh, respect or respectfully, I have to say, I'm very hesitant to say that they have title or ownership of this uh, of this land fully and completely, and their the elected officials don't have the sway over it. I I don't really think that's how that works. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you're when you're Canadian industry and your con- Canadian governments, you're talking with the elected uh, council, band councils, because that's who you can have a conversation with, right? They're the ones who are talking. Mm-hmm. So, and personally, I'm respecting, I know the system was implemented, uh, foisted on them. Note the use of the word foisted. Good use. Um, yeah, it was foisted upon them by the Indian Act. Um, I get all that, but it's still a democratically elected. There are that still means that the majority of the people who voted in this process are voting, are their interests are being um, heard by these uh, elected officials. Mm-hmm. So, to me, if you're going to say, well, legally, how are we going to deal with the leadership of uh, the indigenous people of this area? I'm talking to the democratically elected um, band councils, and I'm talk. I'm trying to talk also to the hereditary chiefs. But if it's a stonewall, then I'm saying, "Sorry, that's just the way it's going to go." Uh, you have the full right to pro- protest in legal fashion, um, but as Scott says, that your right to protest uh, at some point runs out, and that time is as long. Uh, been surpassed in my opinion now i want to read just a small clip just i mean like to me we can talk about the legal nuances and it's crazy like it's it's very complex to get a handle on and and i'm definitely not an expert but i i like to think about this in terms of real world outcomes okay so let me just read a a, a excerpt from a video uh posted to the uh 
BC MLA, uh, Ellis Ross. He's an MLA for the Skeena region. I don't know if anybody. I've been looking forward to hearing this. This is this is good. <laughs> okay, good. So, uh, are you serious? Have you heard, have you seen this video uh, blog, Coleman? Should oh yeah, I, totally. Good. good. <laughs> okay, so uh, BC MLA Ellis Ross for the Skeena region uh, goes ahead and says this. So, there's a 14 year old Aboriginal kid. That's taking his first drink of alcohol. He's sucking on his first joint. He's going to do something and he's on his way to prison. That's his roadmap. If you save that kid, if you show that kid there's a better future out there, get him into a trade, get him into a course, show him a work site and show him there's a better future in terms of getting a house, getting a job, going on vacation, buying a truck. You've done your job. He's addressing the leadership, uh, the indigenous leadership Mm -hmm. uh, across the country at this point. Um, he goes on to say, I guarantee you those activists and those politicians that are going to stop the development in your territory, they do not care about that 14-year-old kid. They do not care. They could care less. They don't care if that kid commits suicide. He goes on to say, your, your people are elected. Your people elected you in for a reason. I support Aboriginal leaders who do good things for their people. If you get that kid off drugs, if you get him off alcohol, the press will not be there. It is just not sexy enough. Nobody's going to do a story on a community cutting its suicides in half or resolving its welfare list. It's a lonely job, but it's worth it. So to me, when I hear an uh, Aboriginal leader like this, uh, uh, like Ellis Ross talk, this this to me is is talking truth. Now, I understand that the, that the protests are uh, sparked anger across the country for legitimate reasons like no question about it there's absolutely legitimate reasons to be upset about um colonialism and all this stuff like uh, um the the stealing of land in the past and and all this kind of thing but to me the the real world issue is that right now indigenous uh, communities across the country are living in um largely in poverty. Um, and that is driving quite a bit of this, this anger. And it's, mm-hmm. it's a cycle. The onus is on both the non-Indigenous people of Canada and the Indigenous peoples of Canada to get them on a good track. Mm-hmm. And if you're becoming an illegal protester, I'm sorry to say, but you've become a criminal in the eyes of the law and it should be dealt with. It's not just trains. There's road blockades that are blocking ambulances in Vancouver. There was a hospital in Vancouver that had to send out a public notice saying, if you need to come to the hospital, you can't take the standard route anymore because there's a blockade on this specific bridge. Mm-hmm. Um, there, There is... I don't know. It's people are getting um, strung up, or strung up is the wrong word, but people are getting really infected with this idea now that this is an opportunity to uh, take down um, the systems, the economic workings, and underpinnings of this country. And I think right now we need strong leadership to step in and say, uh, "Enough's enough." If you're going to protest illegally, you will be arrested. Um, and the court injunctions that are have been levied already 
I mean, there's judges in this country right now that are saying, uh, excuse me, I put an injunction on this case for you to go arrest these protesters because they are disrupting the public peace and they are dangerous in some cases. Uh, and you're using this as a political piece. Um, so yeah, I'm, I think at some point the protesting needs to be uh, met with strong leadership from, and it's like, quite frankly, it starts with Justin Trudeau. Like his dad put in a police state once upon a time. I'm not saying that's the case that should happen right now, but he did for the FLQ uh, kidnappings. And obviously these are very two different uh, situations, but you need to act strongly and swiftly. You can't just sit on the sidelines and say, well, this will just resolve itself. No, I'm sorry if you are engaging in illegal activity uh, that is harming others, then you need to be arrested right now. And it needs to be very clear because, uh, Brad, you said, or I think Coleman, you said it's a slippery slope to um, arrest protesters and it looks bad. The optics, it's also a slippery slope to not arrest protesters because what you're telling them is that this is legal, which in fact it is not. Um, Even blocking the steps to a legislature in BC, blocking people from getting to their jobs, that's not simply not legal. And uh, to say it's a nonviolent protest, actually, that's untrue. If you are blocking someone from getting to their place of work, that is a violent protest because they look at you and they say, I'm fearful of this group. Um, I can't get to where I need to go. Um, and I, it, the fact of the matter is, is that this is not just an Indigenous issue. There's a lot of people out there right now who are picking up on this and saying, um, this is this is now an opportunity for me to be angry mm-hmm. at the mach- at the machine. Uh, let me just read a tweet here from uh, Claire Abstract. Claire Abstract, you can see her at uh, at Claire Abstract. Uh, I'll read her kind of uh, description. Uh, Trans Tifa super soldier for thirst and shit posting. Uh, noted hashtag eco terrorist. Her pronouns are she slash her I and Slav- Slavoj uh, Zizik. Please be my boyfriend. And uh, I'm just- happy you you put the bio in. By the <clears throat> well, it gives it context. Yeah, but- well, and yeah. here's here's a little bit more context and just maybe a warning if you're. A yeah, because that's what I wanted was more context. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Here's a, here's a little more context for Claire Abstract. If it, just in case you're uh, kind of have a you want to look her her profile up in in work or in a in a family home. Uh, she, are, are you sure she, we should gender her after that that bio there? I think we. Should she just, said her pronouns were she and her. Well, that's that's, that's right that's in her good. bio. That's good that we got that. That's yeah, good. yeah. So uh, she says in a tweet, a pinned tweet from January 9th, P.S. This profile is about to become low-key horny. So if you don't especially want to see that part of my life, now is a good time to unfollow. I won't even hold it against you. Feel free to DM me for my Facebook profile, which is more chill and work safe. So if you're thinking about looking her up, just know it's her profile. Is this this the tweet Uh, that got you following Claire Abstract? 
Yeah, it was so low-key horny. You wow. came for the That's horny. What I'm looking for. Yeah. Um, I say I'm not very low-key after hearing Bargs answer. <laughs> That's right, yeah. So anyway, let's uh, let's get to the, the meat of it, shall we? We're not uh, even at the tweet yet. We're not <laughs> even there. No, no, we're not even there. So Claire Abstract says, uh, you know how the uh, hashtag Vancouver Skytrain track alarm is extremely easy to trigger and how the city shuts down whenever the Skytrain shuts down, even briefly? Just something to think about, hashtag wet and strong to which the Metro Vancouver Transit Police tweeted at, back at her, uh, replied to her tweet. Uh, when the track intrusion alarms are triggered, all trains in the area emergency break hard, potentially causing serious injury to those on board. Rethink your comments before potentially putting people's safety at risk. This is not the way to make your point. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what we have here is we have emboldened idiots uh, <laughs> suggesting things that are terrible ideas because they get the sense that this is all legal. This is all fine. We can shut down this, this country just by doing crazy shit. And it's all good because we're with uh, Wet'suwet'en, Wet'suwet'en strong. And uh, frankly, I, I'm just finding this to, like I, that's disgusting to me, this attitude that that we can now feel emboldened by it. And I, I'm really disappointed that the Canadian leadership, uh, the weak-kneed Justin Trudeau, uh, is not has not taken a stance on this because it's about to become, it is about to become a national, has the potential to be a national crisis. I'm not going to say it's about to become a national crisis. It has the potential to become a national crisis. And so far, crickets from leadership uh, and people are breaking the law all across the country well, with no consequences. All right, I think we got we understand your your opinion on it, and I can agree with 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 some of that. I mean, Trudeau isn't in the country at the moment, so it's kind of exactly yeah. Yeah, well, the, if he goes on a trip that's been planned and a protest happens to break out, yes, he can come back. I get that. I know. Of course, the federal the minister uh, the indigenous minister is meeting with some of the groups today as well and but i think you know steve you're right like protests you know this person that you've found on twitter is clearly a dum-dum uh and and low-key horny and and low-key horny um but i I think that this is kind of i think this is kind of whenever you have a situation like this we can find the dum-dums in the crowd and point to them and discredit a whole protest you know and we can look at certain protests and say well this is too far and this isn't you know but the point is you have to if we're all agreeing that you know you're allowed to protest but to an to a to a point that is we no one can none of us here i don't think can like really point out what what that point is i mean we can come up with examples etc uh-huh yeah. yes i want to i i i just did I yeah i, I understand what you're saying don't let him do it yeah <laughs> But I just, I think that that it's, and I agree, I'm sitting on the fence here on this one. I, you know, I think people should be allowed to protest, like we've all said, but there is a, there is a limit to that for sure. Um, you know, the leadership should do something. Yes, there should be. I would hope that there's negotiations going on at this point. It takes two parties to negotiate. That's That's always true. But again, to me, this comes down to the fact, and as Coleman said, 
we're just kicking the heart of the issue down the down the line. And this is the first time that um, I've actually looked at it in terms of what is the you know what is the legal tried to find out what is the legal status of these lands, this territory, the leadership, all that. And the answer is nobody fucking knows because we've no one's dealt with it. And I think that that maybe that, you know, when I said, is this an opportunity to be a turning point? I would think that that would be where the action should be is like, no, let's actually finally try to have a difficult conversation about setting up some legal precedent that everyone can be on board with. And it's going to be it's messy because you're never going to get 100 percent consensus and stuff like that. But we, you guys were just talking, you know, Steve, you were just saying, you know, at what point the, you know, 20 people, the majority there's got to be a way that that we could do it. And that seems to be where rather than all of these, you know, drawing all these frayed ends into all of this, there's a real way to deal with all of it. And it seems to me that that's it. Does anyone want to jump in with anything else on that or? Well, I just want to respond super quick and I won't, uh, I know Coleman's giving him the eyes here. I don't believe you at all. Are I you, don't believe you. Are you low-key horny over there? Is that your low-key? <laughs> I'm not low-key anything right now. I'm just completely raging. <laughs> High-key horny. That's the way I really like it. Uh, that's why I signed up for this series of podcasts. That's right, yeah. So, I mean, listen, obviously there's dummies on both sides. Like, uh, I mean, there's there is an idiot uh, with a Confederate flag who drove through a uh, uh, highway blockade mm-hmm. uh, the other day, and it's like, yeah, this that is- was a mistake. I was texting. That's why. I- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, I, I had mean, my okay, skinnered well, up too loud. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I definitely uh, had my skinnered up too loud. Yeah. Lord knows, I can't change. <laughs> but here's the thing: if you take a strong stance against this, we don't. I don't have to deal with the idiots on both sides. If you're strong as a government and you're and you. Uh, you are acting with a code. That's what I'm really asking for here is act with a code. Justin Trudeau's government doesn't have any code. His code is to try to appease and to try to placate as many people as he can at the same time. There's no code there. Yeah, I act agree with, with the that. Code. And, and right now you have a national code, which is called the law. Your judges and your elected officials are pleading with you to enforce the law. And people are are getting hurt, or potentially getting hurt, or could this become could become far more serious? So, all right, fair enough. That was a hell of a line, by the way. Just there, we have a dorky code right now. It's called the love. <laughs> yeah, thank you, thank you. That's in my notes. Well done. Yeah, T-shirt right? coming soon. Yeah, dorky code called the love. Matt. Yeah, I don't, did I say dorky or did I say low key horny? <laughs> I thought you said. Oh, yeah, there it is. Uh, uh, I'm gonna. Uh, I'll make way one final point on my thought on the um, the pipeline, and then sadly, I'm gonna have to leave the rest to you guys, as my wife is sassing me to take over babysitting or you know parenting, as we're supposed to call it these days. Uh, my thought is, I think Brad, you're right. We absolutely should. We won't, but we should try and clarify the legal situation as far as the title to these lands and who controls what um but even in in alberta if i'm say a rancher and they find oil on my land and they want to drill for it i can't say no even though i own the land like i have title to the land you still don't have the right i mean they have to consult with you and negotiate and presumably you come to an agreement and 
Uh, most ranchers want it because they want the money that comes with it. But if I'm dead set against it, I it's you know having the title to my land does not come with a veto over approved oil and gas projects. And I think some sort of system like that to me would make sense that if we have an overwhelming consensus and the whole country wants it and it's everyone but you, then you can't, you know, um, just kind of shut down the whole thing. But um, anyway, Jens, I'll have to leave. I'll have to leave the Biden bashing to you guys. You lying dog faced pony soldiers. How dare you? Uh, but I, how dare you? <laughs> I appreciate you uh, having me on here. I look forward to hearing how the, uh, how the rest of it comes out. Sorry. I had to peace out early, but um you know, sometimes you just get a little low-key horny and you got to bounce. <laughs> right, yeah, got... I, I get that. Tweet about it. All right. I'll, I'll tweet you. I, I, that, that account, it's me. I'll be honest. That account is me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Gentlemen. All right. Well, heated discussion. Do you, do you guys want to continue uh, with a little bit of... Well, just, oh, just to... I, uh, sorry, Cole, to cut you off. Uh, <laughs> no, just to... Uh, to follow up with Scott's point, in Alberta, you don't even have to clean up the wells on the farmer's property. Yeah. You just leave them there. You no, that's the government's job. Like, <laughs> Alberta. Well. Uh, so, well, with the departure of Scott, we'll move to international international news. Uh, you know, that really we can't be being America's hat. You know, we are we're affected by everything that goes, goes down, uh, that goes on down there. So, Let's do some primary talk, primary talk, and I'm sure that'll lead into some Trump talk. Uh, I know Steve was a big, uh, he was a member of the Yang Gang, and Yang is out. Yeah. Uh, the latest, as we're recording this, is Bernie won New Hampshire. Um, and did, he win, uh, did he win Iowa too? It was close. It took so long to count that I never actually, I don't, I don't think, think anybody I got the result. I don't think anybody knows. I don't know who won. Is Iowa still a state? Yeah. Did they shut down Iowa? Yeah, I don't. Uh, <laughs> no, I, he won Iowa. Yeah, Bernie. Did he win Iowa? Yeah, Bernie? Yeah. Did, yeah. Is that a Yeah, because I wasn't sure if Iowa was still, still a thing. They just got rid of it entirely. I thought they were still counting. Because, um, yeah, last I heard, they, I thought Pete, Mayor Pete, had won the delegates in the more, more delegates in Iowa, but Bernie had the more votes, which is a, just part of the weird system i don't know exactly how it works um and with bernie winning new hampshire outright delegates and votes i think um he i think is in the lead in terms of delegates although it is close anyway i don't know um what do you guys make of the you know the race who's coming up joe biden finished a, a dismal fifth uh, but he's heading into states where he's supposed to have more uh, more support uh, in the African-American communities and Latino communities. Um, you know, New Hampshire and Iowa, not a lot of those members there. Uh, and do you think, let's get a little, you know, tinfoily hat. Do you think the establishment is out to stop Bernie? Yes, 100%. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. All right. Oh, yeah, I, I agree. I think there's a, I don't know, I don't know if it's ironic, because like most people, I don't exactly know what the word ironic means, but like I think Bernie's facing the same struggle that Trump faced when he was running for, in the in the primaries for the Republican Party. It's that there's a guy that the establishment Democrats just really don't want to be their candidate, 
And I think it's pretty clear with how easy they're making it for Bloomberg to buy his way into this race, <laughs> even though no one wants that guy. <laughs> Absolutely no one wants this guy. But it just proves that you have enough money. You can buy your way into American politics. Mm -hmm. Or like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, too, are like the two candidates that the U.S. absolutely needs right now. 100%. And it says a lot about that country that it's not painfully obvious that these are the two to go with. I'm not going to speak on Yang because that's obviously Barg's field of expertise. I, I, I know much less about the Yang campaign. I did like the, the universal basic income thing that he brought up. I think that's a very... Quick side note, I don't think there's any better response to... Uh, the future job loss that automation is going to bring than universal basic income. If there is, I would like to hear it, but it's the only reasonable response to what I've heard. But uh, yeah, I think absolutely the Democratic Party is fighting as hard as they can to get Bernie Sanders to not be their candidate in the next election, even though that I think he would do great things for the country. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Steve? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, um, yeah, I agree that uh, Bernie's... Uh, fighting through that, he's got a kind of uphill battle to win over the establishment or to uh, battle that situation. But yeah, I fully, fully believe that he's not their first choice. It's uh, Joe Biden and uh, Pete Buttigieg, um, who seems like a political kind of like a cut and paste guy made up of the corporate democratic interests uh not a big pete fan but anyway i will uh i'll just interrupt you on biden quick mm. i think we learned we've learned a lot about biden that he's the perfect vice president that we just mm. see enough of him to not realize how much of a doofus he is <laughs> yeah no for sure he's yeah i i completely agree with that um it, my opinion though, will change completely though when he onboards yang on his ticket uh, he's uh, VP Andrew. Yeah, some like Yang juice, baby. Um, <clears throat> no, I don't know. It's uh, I, you know, I, I'm now fully on board Bernie, and um, you know, we talk about this as if though we even have a vote, which we don't. Mm -hmm. um, but it affects but, us. Uh, it affects everybody. We're, we're white yeah. men. I think we could definitely find a way to vote in the American election. I think we could go to a state and they yeah. would like move heaven and earth to get us to vote in that election. If we pooled totally. all of our savings together, we might be able to buy a vote. Yeah. Buy a vote. Yeah. Um, I don't think it'd be that much money. I think it'd be pretty cheap. <laughs> I think they're so excited yeah. to let white men vote in Republican states that as long as we just didn't say we we're voting for Bernie, we could definitely get a vote. We probably wouldn't have to wait in line. Probably it's probably like not, a yeah. private in the back they would just let us in there's like a nexus line <laughs> yeah for, for voting for, for white canadian men. white men yeah. vote in the <laughs> north dakota yeah primary yeah yeah uh anyway so i'm on i'm on team bernie now uh, until and i think i think he'll do well i think he can uh overcome this uh kind of institutional slant against him and his uh crazy socialist views um a little bit of sarcasm in my mm -hmm. home there i do think i do think yang's a perfect vp candidate for birdie by the way uh they're both coming at it from the same uh not establishment area i think i think if you're going to be 
an establishment candidate like Biden or uh, Buttigieg, you pick a non-establishment guy. Yeah, but you're running against Trump, though. I think if you run an establishment candidate against Trump, you get exactly where Hillary was. Where Hillary was clearly the best candidate for I, president, I, he didn't win. I think Trump's going to win no matter what. I don't think there's uh, – I almost – I mean, obviously, I know there's a chance, but I think Trump's going to uh, crush uh, any Democratic candidate that makes it through. Uh, but I think in terms of the winning the Democratic race, <clears throat> uh, I think that, you know, if you're an establishment candidate, it makes a certain amount of sense to bring in the guy who can take Trump voters with him. Like Yang has proven in polls, both Yang and Sanders have proven in polls, that they bring a certain segment of Trump voters with them. Mm-hmm. Whether or not they would follow with them in a VP role, I have no idea, but it's, it's possible. <clears throat> and uh, yeah, I guess we'll see. I, I, I don't know. I think it's going to be Biden. At the end of the day, I think it's going to be Biden and uh, Bernie. And I think Bernie's going to, going to win the nomination. That's my hope anyway. And uh, we'll see what happens. But I mean, like you're looking at Iowa and New Hampshire, people talk about these early States, like they mean something. They really don't. They only mean stuff to, uh, to thin the, candidate heard yeah it's like and the early the early primaries are like the nfl after week one it's not it's everyone's putting these storylines it's like the exhibition season yeah because the the or the patriots lose to the chiefs in week five and all of a sudden tom brady's career is over so yeah let's wait let's give it a second Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. so i mean we all know who's gonna stick it out with uh Bernie and and uh, Elizabeth Warren and uh, probably Buttigieg and Biden, but uh, I hope Bloomberg doesn't keep making noise. That guy's a that guy's kind of a monster, isn't he? Is like isn't he even more monstrous? Yeah, he's than, uh, than Trump he's a big and, yeah. stop and frisk in New York when he was mayor. Like just a lot of stuff, and it says a lot about the American system. If it ends up being Bloomberg versus Trump in the next federal election, it's like officially democracy is dead in the U.S. Mm. Like there's no way to bounce back from that because mm-hmm. it proves that you can just buy your way into these these races. Because mm. even if like if Biden somehow wins, at least it's you know I'm sure the Democratic Party would like like that, but they're not changing the rules to let Biden participate like they are with mm. Bloomberg essentially. Yeah, yeah, and. Uh, yeah, he just brings nothing. Because if you look at his history, he's bounced back and forth between being a Republican and a Democrat. Yeah. He has. And he's only, I think he's only there as a response to these wealth taxes that uh, Biden and Warren are suggesting. And the only reason he's there is to like protect the billionaire class in the U.S. against having to pay their fair share at some point. Like there's absolutely no redeeming qualities for <laughs> Bloomberg being a candidate going forward. And I will... And like my Instagram feed was taken over the other day because he paid every meme account on Instagram yeah. to like do these shitty meme advertisements for him. And like good for them for getting paid, like whatever. Like I, I like people on Instagram making money because it's stupid. But uh, like it's like there's nothing there with Bloomberg. No one wants him. No one wants him at all. He has no support. It's just, it's blatant what's going on right now. It's kind of disgusting, mm-hmm, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, uh, I did say Bloomberg was a monster 
I should back that up, I guess. Uh, here's a few of the things that uh, Bloomberg has said. Um, Go, Barg. I I'd fuck that in a second. I'd do that piece of meat. If women wanted to be appreciated for their brains, they'd go to the library instead of Bloomingdale's. He called women fat broads, horse-faced lesbians. Uh, and, I mean, I'm looking at a list here. Uh, hey, he sounds like a perfect uh, candidate for the president of the U.S. I'm looking yeah, at, okay. He didn't say you'd grab anyone by the pussy, so obviously yeah. like, the, yeah. the line has moved. Yeah, with presidential That's right. So I mean, he's, uh, and this is all based on uh, some someone someone put together this list anyway. And uh, I'm just reading off there. It made uh, the news this list. So mm-hmm. that's where that's give us a give us. Is there more? I would like to hear more. Uh, to a female judge ruling against his policies, uh, your safety and the safety of your kids is now in the hands of some woman who does not have the expertise to do it. Uh, I know for a fact that any self-respecting woman who walks past a construction site and doesn't get a whistle will turn around and walk past again and again until she gets one. Uh, my God. Uh, how is he (laughs) saying that? Like what? possible situation it's not like he was accidentally overheard saying that entire bit like he clearly meant no to this say is that. yeah this is in many different situations obviously it's a collection of things he said so it's the greatest hits well okay yeah. so i guess we'll see when is uh, south carolina is next i think this upcoming week and we'll see what changes none of you guys mentioned klobuchar so you don't think uh, you don't think amy klobuchar has any real no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, good. Yeah, I'm okay with that response. <laughs> Absolutely not. I mean, we have Elizabeth Warren, who's a legitimate female candidate in the U.S., and she's getting almost no press at all right now. Mm-hmm. So, like, Klobuchar came that's in where we are. New Hampshire. Yeah, but who's talking about it? That'll be on her bio for a long time. Third in New Hampshire. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the only time New Hampshire ever gets brought up. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, like... And I think Elizabeth Warren has been uh, stuck in a lot of press. I don't think she's been very impressive. She, she, at the uh, beginning, she laid out a lot of policy. It was all policy with her, and she seemed to have a policy plan for everything. And I thought it was like it seemed all very reasonable and like well thought out, well planned. But I, you know, there was uh, I was listening to podcasts about you know these issues pundits kind of thing talking and a lot of people are saying that you know a lot of people don't make up their mind till the last minute on these votes and stuff like that so you need some kind of brand aware you need some kind of connection with the voters and she's lacked that so she brought out a lot of policy but maybe she lacked a lot of like personal story that people can connect with um i think bernie's got that i think bernie's kind of got both of those things you kind of know where he stands on issues and broadly on policy um he's you know i think he has i think he has a chance to win the the nomination i think he has a chance to win the election too uh because he is outsider uh i think he would go i think you i would love to see him v trump on a debate stage i think Mm -hmm. i think it would be if nothing highly i don't share I don't share Barg's pessimism. I think Sanders can beat Trump. I think so too. Just because I think you can't run an establishment. You saw what Trump did to Jeb Bush. Yeah. 
like an establishment candidate like that. I just don't think you can run an establishment candidate against Trump. And Bernie Sanders is nothing even close to establishment. Even though, like, and it's kind of weird because he's been in the Senate for so long now. Yeah. But he's, like, not establishment at all. And I think, and I used to think that, like, he would be sunk by the socialist tag, like, hashtag socialist with Bernie Sanders. I thought that would slow him down. But honestly, I think that guy can just like rise above Trump. I think it's entirely possible. Mm-hmm. I think he'll he'll look better in contrast next to Trump. He also won't take shit from Trump. I think he can clap back yeah. in a reasonable way uh, that you know would would help stay on message and help just sort of it would make Trump look like the dum dum he is. You know, he would be up there sort of. But I mean, all of these questions, I mean, these, this is basically we're talking about electability arguments and we, no one knows. I mean, no one thought Trump was electable and he got elected. Well, I remember talking to you. I think it was at Daryl's house. We are just like sitting there and I told you flat out, like there was absolutely no way Trump could be elected president. There is zero chance. <laughs> and this is where we're at right now. So like, I think any traditional arguments about electability are completely out the window in the States mm-hmm. right now. I do think that also Bernie, you know, there's an appetite for, you know, and this is why Trump got in, I, a part of why Trump got in, because he was saying, you know, we're going to change things, we're going to do things differently, blah, blah, you know, he's done none of that, but whatever, that was part of the message. And I think Bernie brings that message, he brings that outsider element, he's offering it in, you know, a different way, we'll say. Although, you know, when you look at some of the, you know, the, the people that, that he's targeting, it's the same people that Trump was targeting, people that are economically insecure or uh, I guess Trump was targeting more people who were socially in, in, unsure, you know, with the immigration stuff like that. And Bernie's obviously not going to do that. But I think with an economic message of like for the working class people, I think you can you can get pretty far. Uh, but we'll see. Um, yeah. I think we should cut it off here because we've been going for a while. So uh, it's been great to wrap politics with you guys. Really enjoyed it. Uh, and we'll do it again. So, yeah, until next time. Thank you, Coleman. Thank you, Steve. Thanks a lot, Brad. Thanks, Coleman. Oh, it's, uh, it's a pleasure as always to hear from both of you. <laughs> All right. All right, there you go. I hope you enjoyed, uh, you know, another, a bunch of other dudes' takes on on the on the issues, on the politics. That's what you all came here for, right? Was more politics. Um, thank you for listening. Uh, please do follow the show, subscribe, rate it, comment it, share it with friends. Uh, we are going to do more of these um politics shows uh like i said because we all just we all just love it so much um but otherwise stay tuned to the feed because we'll be doing the regular science stuff and i have some more really great conversations with some really great scientists coming up uh thank you again for listening and we will catch you next time bye for now